Well, good morning. All right. Anyway, well, thank you for having me today. Uh, it's good to be with all of you, and it's been a pleasure. I think the last couple of years we've done some combined services together, uh, Good Friday and, and Christmas Eve. So I pastor at Dwell, like right around the corner, practically. Um, and Mark and Gary have been uh, become good friends and, and been very encouraging to me personally. So it's a privilege to be here. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we will uh, get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, do thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your love and your mercy. Lord, we pray this morning your spirit would open our hearts, you would speak to them, Lord, to uh, hear from you, Lord, that we would know you more deeply, and in that, Lord, we would grow to know ourselves as well, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Um, So I'm kind of going to be in Psalm 37, I'm going to be like kind of all over the place, and then we'll come back to it a little bit at the end, uh, which will make sense, so just hang with me for those of you that are like, we're going to dive into a psalm. Um, we're not, exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, more than a year ago, I went on a personal uh, prayer retreat uh, with a spiritual director, and, and in that, um, essentially, I was given some passages out of the Gospels to, to pray through and, and meditate on. And uh, one of them sort of just has been... Um, you know, just dug into my soul over the past uh, year. And it's in First John 1 uh, when um, Jesus is, is calling his disciples and um, John the Baptist said, Behold the blood of the Lamb, and then they're, they go to Jesus. And then in 138, John 138, uh, Jesus turns and says to them, What do you want? What do you want? Some translations render it, what are you seeking? But what, what do you want is really uh, the more direct one. And I think it's a really striking question. If you stop and think about it, I mean, here's the Lamb of God, the Messiah, uh, the Son of the Most High, God in the flesh, sees you and says to you, what do you want? And God knows everything, and he knows everything about us, and it, why would he ask that? Why would he ask that question? And the disciples go, hey, where are you staying? You know, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and then Jesus responds cryptically, I think in a, in a phrase that's pregnant with meaning itself, come and see for yourself. What do you want? Jamie Smith begins his book, You Are What You Love, saying, what do you want? That's the question. It is the first, last, and most fundamental question of Christian discipleship. His argument, as the, book, uh, makes, as the book's name implies, is that your loves determine and reveal what is the most important thing about you. He says the reason that you hear a good sermon and go back to your old ways on Tuesday morning, giving you grace for a day... <laughs> is that your desires haven't changed. That he argues it's the missing ingredient in discipleship, uh, that we don't pay enough attention to our habits, revealing what our desires are. Consider Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. It's an interesting question. What do you want that Jesus 
asks. And why would God ask questions? Why would Jesus ask us questions like that? A, fr- a friend of mine, he used to pastor in San Jose. He now teaches at some school, I think, in Carolina. One of the Carolinas. I don't even know which one. Um, uh, Douglas Estes. And he wrote an article in Christianity Today this last month entitled, Questioning Why God Questions. If God knows all, why does he ask questions? Does Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, not know what the disciples are thinking, what you are thinking, what you want, your emotions and desires? And many philosophers and theologians have wrestled with why God questions and whether or not they were legitimate or whether or not it's a thinly veiled command of some kind. Um, but, but most ancient people didn't really struggle with these questions in the, in the way that perhaps we might or, or philosophers and, and theologians have, but see it as necessary dialogue. That what he points out in the book is that, you know, the reason why God asks questions is the same reason we do, the desire for relationship. Our, my children, you know, they have a tendency to uh, mumble uh, when they want something, you know, like a cookie, and they're afraid to ask for it, right? And, uh, you know, they're, they're afraid we might say no, as we often do, right? But we know exactly what they want, but we still insist that they ask. We still insist that they are specific about their desire about what is on their heart. It is necessary for us to know each other, right? For them to learn uh, about their parents and what their parents' wishes are and for them to make clear what their own are. I think even in my own life, I've often had periods of time where I was afraid to ask God for what, what I want. You know, you just you sort of wrestle with these things sometimes that you're like, well, just tell me. You know, tell me what is your will and, and I'll do it. Uh, will we? I mean... <laughs> but then, there's this question. Jesus asked of his disciples, what do you want? See, part of the reason why God asks these questions is he's helping us to learn who we are and to, in turn, learn more about him and the kind of God that he is. Jesus' question really is forcing us to examine the depths of our soul, to learn more about ourselves and our desires as well as we learn about God. Think of uh, the last chapter in John. We sort of revisit this, and and, uh, Jesus reinstitutes Peter after his betrayal, and he says to him three times, do you love me? And Peter responds like, you know I love you. I mean, come on. Like, why would you ask me such a thing? And countless sermons have been written ever since, but maybe the simplest is that Jesus is pressing him to push Peter deeper. This tension between knowing God and knowing ourselves is is intimately connected in Scripture, and it's very apparent in all these uh, points of dialogue that God has with one of his people throughout the Scriptures. So John Calvin, in his um, Institutes of the Christian Religion, he summarizes this tension very well. And it's his opening line for his Institutes, probably 
one of the best opening lines in, in any work of theology. Um, and it's a line that really drives the entire way that he does, the institutes. And he says this, this is how he opens. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, knowledge of God and of ourselves. That knowing God and knowing yourself are interrelated. So in looking at Jesus' question, what do we want? There are sort of three things that we'll look at. How do we know what it is that we want? What do we do when those desires conflict, right, with God or others or ourself? And, how, and we will end with, how do we resolve the conflict? How is the conflict sort of resolved? So the first piece is that there are essentially three things in Scripture that were said about um, sort of competing sources, that is the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? Is it the, the culture that we grow up in? And, and asking someone what the culture is is kind of like asking a fish, how's the water? You're not really aware of it. You just absorb it. And that's much of Jamie Smith's argument, that we have cultural liturg- liturgies that we embody. Um, and he's using liturgy in the sense of our habits of things that we embody that tell a story. And consumerism is one of those, but also, probably more importantly, is the sovereign self. That the individual needs to be true to themselves. That they determine that for themselves. Against all pressure, all uh, outside forces, against any sense of conformity or authority or any of these kinds of things. If you stop and think about it, literally every Disney movie, that's what it's about. Every song. Every TV show, all of it is essentially telling you, be yourself. And it is up for you to determine solely, right? And we're kind of fools if we don't think we've absorbed this. I mean, early on when I was trying to discern my call, some of the best advice I heard was, follow your heart. Follow your heart. How do you distinguish that from someone who follows Buddha, leaves their spouse for another, pursues their dream career, or any other major decision that someone makes? I'm being true to my heart. I'm following my heart. I'm being myself, and this is who I really am. Right? And that's the narrative. It is a narrative that comes from the world, right? The other place as well would be our own flesh, our fleshly desires, our temptations, our appetites uh, for pleasure-seeking, avoidance of pain or pride or or any other sort of vice in Scripture. Uh, The third, of course, being the devil, which is one that we really don't talk about much. Our culture doesn't discuss it at all. And there's actually been a few books, one I really need to peg down and read uh, because it comes from uh, a secular person who's uh, not a believer and argues that our society has lost a sense of spiritual evil um, in order to explain the horrors in the world. And uh, Fleming Rutledge, in her book, The Crucifixion, argues, I think quite persuasively, we can't explain evil, per se. 
it is ultimately irrational. And that we as Christians need to really get in touch with making this clear. I mean, what better explanation is there for the unconscionable evils in this world? Horrors of genocide, Nazi Germany, Rwanda. Even our own country's battle with racism and white supremacy. How do you explain these things? It can't merely be the product of education, ignorance, or culture. They're things that defy explanation unless it's, at the end of the day, demonic forces at work. I think of all the things after Charlottesville that I heard, the most accurate thing from many wonderful Christian leaders I respect, the most accurate thing said is that racism is satanic. That's the most accurate description of what it is. So the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, if we only focus on sin and the brokenness of the world and all these sort of forces, we are skipping the first chapter of the Christian story. And that is that everything that God made is good, that we are created in his image, that not all of our desires are evil, that we're just a mixed bag, right? Hence the inner conflict that we may feel. Maybe some of you don't. Maybe some of you are just way more assertive than me, and you have no problem asking for what you want. I'm not one of those people. I mean, there's just a tendency sometimes for us to um, live our whole Christian life in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will be done, Lord. Not realizing that we are made in His image, that every single human being is endowed with gifts from their Creator, that all of us are endowed a sense of, of calling to be fruitful and multiply, to exercise dominion over the earth, which Andy Crouch says in his book, A Culture Making is essentially unlocking the creative potential of God's world. Here it is. Be artists. Be engineers. Be homemakers. Be lawyers. Fight for the poor, the vulnerable, the oppressed. Make cool stuff. Right? to play baseball purely for the fun of it. All of that is good. And so there's a distinction between good desires and evil desires. And if our desires are deeply flawed, and you know, various people go through a sort of pilgrimage and wrestling with prayer and Jesus' commands to, for us to ask for anything and we shall receive it, um, particularly one that popped up in a devotion I was doing this week. It's Matthew 21, 18 through 22, which says, In the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. And the, when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask for in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, some want to focus on faith. 
Some want to focus on not doubting, yada, yada, yada. The devotional made this interesting comment about faith. That it is simply knowing that all I do, every fiber of my being, is set apart for God. That in other words, I am a vessel for him. That perhaps what Jesus is getting at here is that the same creative power that placed the mountains and the valleys where they are runs through the believer by the Spirit of God because of the blood of the Son of God, that we may ask the Father to move mountains in our lives. There's a story um, around uh, Selma when they were walking across the bridge. And as you know, uh, African Americans were deeply um, influenced by the stories of the Old Testament and the Exodus in particular. And... um, when they walk across the bridge, as the story goes, that the police stood and did nothing. And as they got aside, many of them said, the waters were just parted for us. They just let us go. Like, mountain was moved. In a real sense. Like God showed up and did this thing for us. I think this is where we take the, all the stories in the Bible and we begin to embody them, realize that these aren't just fanciful things, they're not symbolic, they're real. But not like an overly literal sense, but in a way that demonstrate how God works and how he works in our lives and through us. But oftentimes the trouble with all this is that we our desires are in conflict with God and, and each other and, and even ourselves. And as I said, the, the cultural narrative is essentially be yourself. Well, sort of. To make it more clear, it's be yourself as long as it doesn't harm anyone else. I mean, that's essentially what we have. And so life really, at the end of the day, is filled with conflict. Psalm 31 repeats over and over and over again. Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not fret yourself. Don't be filled with anger. Don't respond in wrath. Don't become envious of bad people when they are successful. That really the breakdown in community, even our own commitment phobia and FOMO, right? Fear of missing out, F-O-M-O, okay? All right. It is really the direct result of this like radically individualistic message. And the trouble is, in order to have community, you have to give up freedoms. That in order to be a part of someone, in a sense, you can't truly be yourself. You have to let go of things for the sake of being a part. To be a part of the church, to make it work. We all have to let go of particular preferences that we might have for the sake of the body. Maybe it's worship styles or whatever. In order to marry, to be committed to someone, to experience love, you have to say no to all others. You are limiting yourself for the sake of something greater. And really breakdown in relationships is really the result of this narrative. Be yourself. And it's the result of these conflicting desires and particularly harmful ones. And then, of course, with God. I mean, Scripture depicts us as at war with God, rebellious to Him, and not desiring what He desires. 
and even religious people fall into this, church-going, devout people, biblical, can still lack God's heart. Think for a moment of uh, Moses. Did not Moses know God when he killed the Egyptian? I mean, he was raised in it, hearing all the stories of what God had done for their people, and then seeing all the injustice that they experienced, filled with righteous anger, in a sense, kills the Egyptian. The problem is he knew God, but he had not yet learned his ways. He had not yet learned, as Psalm 37, 5-6 says, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Wait upon Him. And even with ourselves, we have conflicts with ourselves, and part of it is not knowing who we were created to be. I'll, I'll never forget watching a show on, the, on one of the Discovery Channel affiliates, right? Either the Learning Channel or History it doesn't really matter. They're all owned by the same people. Um, it was about a man who loved cats and tigers so much, he had his entire body tattooed to look like a tiger. And then had plastic surgery to implant whiskers, raise his cheeks, like make his eyes look a certain way, had his teeth ground to a point because he wanted to be a cat. You're like... Okay, well, that's an extreme example <laughs> that we might think is a little crazy, but in our society, there's nothing crazy about that. That's who he felt he was. What other narrative is he supposed to have in our culture? But more commonly, we just get mixed up about things that we love and things that we're good at, and who hasn't watched scenes from one of the talent shows like American Idol or whatever and seen people who deeply believed they were in the next Whitney Houston or Beyonce and sounded like fingernails on a chalkboard, right? And then are indignant when the judges tell them they can't sing. That's the part that's crazy. Like, your mom, I'm, bless her heart, but you know what that means in the South, right? I was in the South for a little time. Bless her heart. Yeah, uh, she was wrong. <laughs> But we also can just lose touch with the good things that God has placed in our hearts simply by focusing on these things. And we also can just make too much of things that we do want, good things that we want, acquire more money, or um, putting our hope and making it with the next Silicon Valley startup, or buying more stuff, or pushing our children to be more successful than us. All of these things, trying to find something to fill that gaping hole in our hearts, to give ourselves meaning. Right? That's the impetus behind be true to yourself. Find meaning for yourself. And you've probably heard this before, but Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you that none of these things will ultimately fulfill us in any way. And, and in our day, Spurgeon uh, had a line in a sermon on Psalm 37.4. said, The thought of delight in religion is so strange to most men that no two words in their language stand farther apart than holiness and delight. Right? 
That's what the scriptures say. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What do you want? Begin with this most basic question. Consider the things that you fixate on. Watch your behaviors, the things you tell yourself. Pay attention to what occupies your thoughts. And the heart and the mind are intimately connected in Scripture. They're not quite the same thing, but they're intimately connected. And for, for some of you that are thinkers like me uh, versus feelers, like feelers, you just know what you feel and you talk about your feelings. And thinkers, we think about thoughts about our feelings. And I've noticed that somebody, well, how does that make you feel? And I'm like, well, I think that I feel, that, that's what I, you know, that's the easiest way to make, know which one you are. Just, do you, do you analyze your feelings? Um, some of you, it's just a direct connection. Not so much. I'm like angry two days later, and then by that point, it's like, ah, oh, it's too late. I can't do anything about it. <laughs> I, I realize I'm now mad, and the person has no idea. Uh, anyway, what do you want? I think, uh, like my children, sometimes you are afraid to ask. You're afraid maybe you'll be rejected. You're afraid of what it might say about you. Afraid God may say no. But God invites us to ask. Perhaps you tend to think that all of your desires are only evil, it's not good, that God wouldn't want something like that for you, that to grow in Christ is to deny yourself, so on and so forth. I realize I just skipped over the wrong page. Um, anyway, <laughs> point being, the question, what do you want, illustrates that we are worshiping creatures, and our loves reveal what we truly adore and worship. We can have all the orthodox theology in the world articulate biblical beliefs and doctrine with precision and still not be addressing our own idolatries. Is that the story of Israel? That's like the bulk of the Bible, right? To ask what you want is in part to ask what do you worship? Do you want to be married? Is that what you're really after? Do you want children? Is that what you're really after? Do you want a great career, a house, a happy family, more money, good health? What are you really after? And all of these things are good things. But if we put upon them the expectation that they will satisfy us, Alexander Hamilton said, you will never be satisfied. Sorry, the musical, no one, no one, okay, yeah, catch up, all right, catch up. Anyway, <laughs> such desires, they'll crush you. That the thing you want, you will crush it. Asking a spouse to complete all your expectations and desires. Crush yourself. That ultimately only God can give you that ultimate fulfillment. So delight in the Lord. It's a command. That only God can help us move from being turned in on ourselves to moving outward, giving praise to Him for all the good gifts He has given us, to finding joy in using them for His glory and each other's good, to love God and love your neighbor. That as Psalm 37 says, in verse 11, but the meek shall inherit the land 
and delight themselves in abundant peace. Does that language sound familiar to you? Blessed be the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is where it comes from. The promise to those that wait upon the Lord, that do not fret, but to trust in Him, to commit their ways to Him, to examine our whole life, as Jamie Smith challenges us, and make it a liturgy reflecting the Christian story. That one of the things he says that's missing from most modern worship services is confession. That there is not a time of confession. It's an integral part of the story that's missing from the story we tell in most services. This is ultimately, we are to delight ourselves in Him and find that we are awakened to our true desires and who He made us to be. There's a pivotal story in the Old Testament uh, after the golden calf incident when Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. You know, God just like wants to wipe it all out and start over with Moses. And uh, Moses says, well, what they say about you? And then God uh, relents or even repents, you could render it. And again, it's a dialogue that makes us all wig out. Like, what's going on? Why is he doing this? And then um, after that, you know, Moses has another dialogue with him where he asks to see God's glory, right? Um, And almost by way of introduction to that little passage is this verse where it says, The Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. And then we see Moses asks, well, who will go with us? Will you show me your glory? And twice in that passage it says, I am pleased with you and know you by name. Something you have to know about the word name in Hebrew is that it means not just what you're called, but what you're known for. What you're about. This is truly terrifying verse to me. And also immensely encouraging and comforting at the same time. What is more fearful than to be fully known? Exposed, naked, stripped bare with all your flaws and failures and glories. To have nothing private but everything public, which is true for some of you on social media, but, you know, haha, no one? Okay, like, you're, come on. Like, I have a dry sense of humor, just roll with it, okay? Anyway. And I'll switch on a dime. That's probably the hard thing. I just Anyway. But to be fully known and understood to be loved just as you are. To know even as you are fully known. I, uh, to me, I didn't have this illustration in the first service. I saw it. I'm good. Um, <laughs> and it, it occurred to me, it's like, you know, you look forward to your wedding day. For those of you who are married, you're just really excited, all your dreams are coming true, and then the day hits, and you freak out, right? Not like, like, what am I doing? Like, I'm just, it's, it's overwhelming. There, there it is, this, this merger of love and fear, all at the same time. You just, you just 
blank out and don't remember anything. It's just emotionally overwhelming for a thinker like me. <laughs> but to be before the Lord, to be in his presence, to know him, is to have someone just see right through you. I know you and I know what you are all about. I'm pleased with you, and I know you by name. What is it that you want? Uh, theologian Urs von Balthasar, I think I'm saying that correctly, talks about uh, his illustrations as a mother with her infant. It says, after a mother has smiled at her child for many days and weeks, he notes... She finally receives her child's smile in response. She has awakened love in the heart of her child. And as the child awakens to love, it also awakens to knowledge. Knowing of themselves that I am loved and also knowing another. Do you want to see God? Do you see that it is love for you that awakens you? to your own desires and your need for him, to know him. You know, in that same passage of Moses, as for his glory, it says that no man can see me and yet live. At least not live as you are anymore. To know him is to be transformed by him, to be changed by a relationship with him, to know yourself more deeply than you've ever known. It's also to surrender to him, to be accepted by him, warts and all. To know that he knows your dark side, mirroring your gifting, the very things that he gave you and blessed you with. And as we all know, they have their dark sides. And to be pleased with you still. Not because what you have done or not done, but because that's the kind of God he is, which ultimately he has demonstrated on the cross through Christ, right? Not because there's something you have to bring to the table, not despite yourself, but because he loves you for you and because that's just the kind of God that he is. Do you know him? Even for you as a Christian, Paul says in Romans 14, wake up. And he's speaking to Christians. Wake up. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Maybe you've forgotten your first love. What do you want? 1 John 3, 1 through 3, says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That when we see him, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for 
your marvelous love, that this is who you are, that upon revealing yourself to Moses, Lord, you reveal that you are glorious and merciful and mighty and amazing and long-suffering for us. Lord, it's the kind of God you are, and it's both terrifying and amazing at the same time that you would be present to us, that we could approach you as a child approaches their father, even in the middle of the night, waking us up, approaching the king, because they're their child. Or maybe for some, they haven't known you yet. I pray that uh, maybe today their heart would be awakened to you and they would cry out to you and ask you to show yourself to them, to believe in you for the first time, to confess and to receive your love and your mercy and faith. Lord, for some of us, maybe it's just awakening ourselves, our hearts to you all over again. Or just admitting there are things that we deeply long for. That maybe you either withheld or we wish would still come. Or we pray in all of this that it would draw us closer to you. That we would be more free with who you made us to be. Lord, not at war with ourselves or the world or others anymore. Lord, but that we would be like the meek, knowing abundant peace in the land you have given us, in the things that you have given us. Lord, we pray now by your Spirit that you would work on our own hearts to know your love more deeply. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.